You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back into the Doctor's Lounge. I'm your host, Dr. Hal Schurz. Each week, myself, alternating weeks with my co-host, Dr. Scott Barber, come to you and bring you the information that doctors are speaking about in doctor's lounges all across the country. The show is brought to you by the Docs for Patient Care Foundation, which is the only physician-led healthcare think tank in the country. Go to our website, www.d4pcfoundation.org. That's d4pcfoundation.org and contribute generously so that we can do this show and continue to do the work that we do all around the country trying to influence um, the uh, behaviors of people who are responsible for making laws that affect each and every one of you. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation fights for the physician-patient relationship and for healthcare freedom all across the country. So please support the work that we are doing. Um, Today I uh, have a very interesting show uh, that uh, I am excited to uh, be able to be part of. Um, We've got a special guest which I'm going to introduce. We're going to talk today about mental health problems caused by COVID in children or said another way, COVID-related mental health problems affecting children. And to uh, help with this discussion today, um, my guest is Dr. Roy Benarock, a a friend of mine. He is a uh, Miami native, a Tulane graduate, graduate of Emory Medical School and a, a trainee in residency at Emory. He joined Um, a a large pediatric practice, pediatric physicians, PC, in 1998, which is uh, a Roswell, Georgia pediatric practice that's in the Atlanta area for those of you around the country. Um, And uh, he is also an author. He has written uh, several books on parenting, uh, including Solving Health and Behavioral Problems from Birth Through Preschool, and also a guide to getting the best health care for your child. He's a pediatric expert for WebMD and has created online courses such as Medical School for Everyone and the Skeptic's Guide to Health, Medicine, and the Media, something that uh, is very apropos in today's climate, skepticism about the media. He uh, writes a blog called Pediatric Insider, which focuses on parenting and health care topics in children. And um, my involvement with Roy, beside him being a uh, referring doctor to me for a long time, is working hand-in-hand with him in uh, an effort that we put together quite a few years ago here in Atlanta called the Children's Care Network, which is the largest of its kind, a a cooperative, uh, a a clinically integrated healthcare network for children um, that has well over a thousand doctors that are involved in it. And Roy serves as the chair of this uh, group. I'm the vice chair, so we work together on uh, these uh, on this initiative and have done so for quite some time. So, um, without any further ado, let me introduce Roy Benarock and invite him into the doctor's lounge. Good morning, Roy. 
Good morning, Hal. Thank you very much for, wow, when I, when I hear you go through all of that, it sounds like I've been so busy, doesn't it? It sure <laughs> does. Think, You're an impressive guy. <laughs> but I, I think of myself as, as first and foremost just a general pediatrician. Uh, been doing it uh, actually close to 25 years now, if you can believe that. And that's really my, my main job and, and my main love. But you Plus are all that other stuff. But you're you're very good at, at taking care of children. You recognize the problems in children, and you are an excellent educator and help parents to understand um, how to best take care of their children. Which, in in this climate that we are now um, in, is is more important than ever. Well, thank you. I, I, and I, I completely agree with you. You know, kids depend mostly on their parents. Of course, other things, communities and schools and nutrition, so many things are important. But really, parents uh, have, have most of the responsibility, most of the load. They've got the biggest lift. And uh, they're, they're what helps uh, most important in helping keep kids healthy and happy and safe. And that's a great segue into what we need to talk about today, which is how children are being affected in this COVID environment. It's um, an issue that people like you and I have recognized for quite some time. Um, and there are a number of factors that um, are, are occurring. Um, some are, are um, you know, in unavoidable and others are man-made, but nonetheless the effect on children is profound and people like you and I have recognized this for some time and it's only recently that it appears that uh, the general public the the um, the media the the um, woke crowd if you will are coming um, up to speed on this issue we've um, there's been a couple of recent articles that will will talk about a little bit later on in the show that have appeared in mainstream media such as uh, Time Magazine or U.S. News and World Reports that are focusing on children's mental health issues, the mental health crisis in children. So, Roy, tell, tell our listeners um, what effects COVID is having on mental illness in children. Well, I think, you know, the, the, the simplest part of this, which is what we were maybe too focused on for too long, are the, are the, are the physical effects. I mean, COVID, we know in general uh, that the disease COVID is less likely to affect children than adults, less likely to have complications. So that's that's been known for a while. And that's been, unfortunately, what's kind of led the headlines, right, that kids don't have to worry about COVID and it's not a big deal for kids. And we sort of, uh, you know, the, the needs of kids were, were I think, fair to say a little bit of an afterthought but what we've come to realize are more i suppose the indirect effects we're not talking about the viral effects on the brain which actually are are serious though rare we're talking more about the way that the changing environment for children uh the, the changing home environment and changing school environment changing environment in the playgrounds has affected their their overall mental health and it, and it really is profound in many in many ways unfortunately so the you you mentioned about the virus itself which which is something that affects everybody but <clears throat> children um they they recover the the they rarely um require 
hospitalization and even more rarely uh, succumb to this disease as opposed to elderly patients. But the 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 un the um, I guess silent issue is what it is doing to their their mental health and and um, not being in school is is a, a large part of this um, having to do home school and not necessarily having the resources to be able to succeed as another, having parents who might have been laid off from work is is yet another. I could, the list goes on and on. Okay. So what what are some of the things that you see in your patients that um, that you're hearing about that are um, direct or indirect effects of this pandemic on children? We're, we're seeing this in, in, in a lot of different ways. There are certainly many families who are contacting us uh, whose kids are showing just overt signs of mental illness, symptoms, and, and we can go into that a little bit more, what sort of things you see when a child has things like depression or an anxiety disorder. And those are, are diagnoses that unfortunately we're having to make more commonly now. But there's also a, a very large group of kids who are, are just far more stressed than would be typical, that are disconnected from their friends, are, are moody, are uh, doing poorly in school, uh, they're, they're lying, they're doing all sorts of things that uh, cause concern, appropriately cause concern for their parents. And some of them don't necessarily have a mental health diagnosis, but they're, they're certainly struggling. And uh, sometimes parents are bringing them to our attention, you know, specifically, look, my, my kiddo is, is doing this, he's not acting like himself. Or sometimes it's kind of indirect. In, in pediatrics, uh, mental health issues, things like anxiety and loneliness, sometimes manifest by headaches or belly aches or symptoms like dizziness. So sometimes it's, a, it's more of a physical symptom that drives the visit or, or the phone call or the parents are contacting us via the portal and we'll say, you know, my child is having uh, just, for instance, let's say headaches uh, six or seven times a week. And, and as you dig into this, and there's, there's more of an evaluation, of course, but sometimes it's uh, turning out that it's the, the struggles they're having in school and with friends or, or sometimes, you know, related to their parent situation. You know, kids know when their parents are feeling stressed that maybe parents themselves or grandparents have been ill um, uh, or, or out of work or having financial troubles, all of that kind of trickles down. So we sometimes try to fool ourselves thinking that we can protect our kids from uh, family struggles. You know, we don't tell them that, that, uh, that for instance, mom lost her job or, or something like that. But, you know, the kids, they know it. They, they figure out what's going on. They might not get all the details, but they can tell that their parents are in trouble or their family life is different, and uh, they, they feel that stress, they absorb that stress, and it comes out in different ways. You know, this is, this is um, interesting because there was a panel that uh, was convened, um, which uh, uh, were, um, it was held by um, uh, a number of children's mental health experts um, talking about stress and and um, in U.S. News and World Reports, there was an interesting article that said children's mental health crisis could be the next wave in the pandemic. And what they were alluding to is the what what's been termed adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. And what happens is that 
children who are stressed release more stress hormones. And that may set the stage for various health conditions that could um, exist in these individuals for the rest of their lives. And not just mental health issues, but physical issues like cardiovascular issues or other issues that the stress hormones trigger. And, um, and so it, I think that uh, this is something that's really underappreciated by, by many doctors who are not tuned into the mental health issues in children. Now, this, this, this is another very, very big issue. Uh, research into the long-term effect of these adverse childhood experiences. It, was, it actually began, I think it's interesting, from, from the adult literature, actually, from, from studies uh, that were looking at adults who, who were struggling with obesity specifically. That was how it actually started, which is a huge problem, right? A big problem for adults um, and uh, a, a big drain on the public health system as well. So many uh, morbidities are related to obesity. And researchers were looking, you know, trying to predict what, what people end up struggling with obesity and is there a way to prevent it? And uh, th- this was researched decades ago, actually, that, that going backwards, they found a very high proportion that uh, that these adults had had adverse childhood experiences years ago, decades previously, and it seemed to predict continued struggles with obesity. Um, and uh, actually, research since then has linked the same adverse childhood experiences, not just to obesity though, but to other to mental health disorders, depression, anxiety, but also to physical disorders, as you said, things like an increased risk of heart attacks and hypertension, diabetes. Almost any chronic illness you look at that affects adults can be traced, at least to some degree, as having a contribution to these adverse childhood experiences. Now, COVID itself, of course, is is new, and there isn't any long-term data now looking at kids who who lived through the, the era of COVID, but the same sorts of experiences that have been linked to long-term poor health in adults are the same kinds of things that are going on now in the era of COVID. And it's going to take a long time to sort it out, but I, I fear that there is going to be something here, that this year or year and a half or however long it turns out to be of disruption and, and closing schools and the many other things that have changed kids' lives will have uh, some very, very long-term effects on their health. So that's a that's, um, very interesting point, Roy, because... Um, closing schools, something that that um, the experts now agree should not have been done, and but yet are, is still going on in many parts of the country, going into the second year. Um, this, this is, I think, a misguided policy, um, most would believe. And um, the repercussions, what, what these so-called do-gooders are, are, um, are going to um, cause in terms of the effects on these children and society as a whole. You know, we talk about the effects on each individual, but the cumulative effects on our society, on our, on our health care system are almost immeasurable, wouldn't you say? Well, I, you know, I don't want to paint this as an overly black and white issue. I think there's still research to be done, 
and I'm not. I'm going to disagree with you a little bit okay. on the on a blanket statement that closing the schools was definitely a mistake. Okay. Um, you know, especially as the pandemic was unfolding and it wasn't really clear who the vectors were, who was spreading it. I think that you know specific school closures. In, 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 now, in retrospect, I think it could have been done differently and should have been done differently. But, you know, we have to make decisions based on the data that we have. Right. And I think it was certainly reasonable to do some school closures. Mm-hmm. And I could actually see that in the future, and there will be a future, and we probably need to talk about that, the next pandemic that will occur, specific school closures may have to be part of the solution. We just may, because when kids congregate inside buildings, they, they really are apt to spread viral infections. Now, it turns out that COVID is, is a little different from flu, though. It's not spread among children as efficiently as flu, as we know that now. And I think if we're going to pursue school closures as part of a strategy, it should be done much more specifically, individually, individual neighborhoods with, with very specific sort of guidelines, you know, at this rate of transmission, et cetera. I don't want to get caught up in the weeds, but, but I would say that, you know, school closures aren't necessarily let's say, always a bad thing. Mm-hmm. Now, in retrospect, I think they were done too broadly, and I think it is true that at this point they're, they're being done for too long a time in too many neighborhoods. Um, you know, I guess may, maybe one glimmer of, of, of good news, one good lesson, you know, I'm kind of overall an optimist. I will say we did learn that it is possible, at least in the short run, to close schools and introduce uh, the distance learning. You know, if, for instance, there's a classroom that has an outbreak, uh, that classroom should be closed. Those kids should be sent home for perhaps a few weeks. And, and we know that we can have the flexibility to do that. What I think has, has led to uh, you know, mischief and, and, unfortunately, you know, some long-term problems are going to be these big, broad, send the kids home, keep them home for a year, not provide the kind of support they use, not provide the technology they need to be successful, and treating all of the families the same. You know, you might have some families in a school district whose, whose parents are in ill health or who are especially at high risk of COVID, and having the option for some families for their kids to remain at home, I think, was appropriate. Uh, but again, the, the overly broad approach, yeah, that I think we, we could have done a better job. I, I would certainly agree with that. Um. My guest today is Dr. Roy Benarock, um, uh, Atlanta area pediatrician, and uh, I would I would say uh, an, an an expert on on uh, behavioral issues in children. Um, we're talking about the effects of COVID on the mental health of our nation's children. Roy, um, how how um, do parents know that? Uh, they should be concerned about um, a mental health problem in in their children. I, I, you know, this this predates COVID. I mean, mental health issues in children has been an issue that has received very very little attention. But I think that now um, it's been magnified because of COVID, and I think that awareness is now beginning to. Um, to uh, uh, be amplified about about uh, some of these effects on children, but if you're a parent, what what are some of the what what is some, you you mentioned this earlier? But uh, some of the warning signs: anxiety, um, you know, uh, sadness. Um, what what are what are some things that as a parent 
might might uh, prompt me to call you and say I'm worried about uh, my child because? To me, the quickest, simplest answer, the simplest one-word answer that I share with parents is is the word changes. Mm-hmm. That that concept, that observation, my child has changed. So kids have their own temperament, and some are always a little bit more anxious than others. Some are more outgoing. Uh, some toddlers have more tantrums than others, and, and parents get, get to know their kids, right? right. But, but the word that perks up my ear is, a, is something like, my child, my child has changed. Mm-hmm. So, so for instance, uh, a, a big change in, in mood that wouldn't be usual for your own child. So they become much more irritable. They become much more hopeless. They become perhaps much more angry. They're frequently fighting with their friends or, or with their family in a way that's very different from the way it used to be. Uh, perhaps it could be uh, uh, changes in, um, in relationships. So they're stepping back from their friends. They're no longer keeping in touch with their friends. They have little interest in the sort of hobbies or social groups uh, that, that they used to have. Um, you know, a child who, um, uh, let's say, used to be a, a big reader had just, just stopped. They're not interested anymore. They stopped interested. They, they no longer draw. They no longer do art, something like that big change. Uh, some, sometimes there, there are more physical changes, too, or changes in routine, like a hard time falling asleep or staying asleep or sleeping all the time. Actually, the opposite, sleeping way, way too much. He never used to be like this, but now he's always in his room. Um, he's always asleep. Uh, I would also think about changes in uh, eating eating patterns. You know, uh, he, he only will pick at his food. He doesn't eat anymore. Or the opposite actually. Uh, gaining a tremendous amount of weight, eating all the time can be a, a manifestation of internal stress. Uh, so that, those are kind of the things that I, that I point out that I want uh, parents to, to, to look for. Changes in the, in the normal baseline of how their child behaves. Mm. And, you know, and you, um, you mentioned a, a number of, of physical things. Um, there, just for the parents who are listening to this this podcast, you know, it can be other physical things as well, correct? Like headaches or stomach Absolutely. aches, rashes, right. things that are manifestations of stress. But but some of the other things um, uh, that parents that that we've seen in increasing numbers in children, which are now increasing in this environment are things that are, re, are are gigantic red flags like alcohol use or drug use correct absolutely right now th- those tend to be in a sense more more obvious parents recognize that that's a, a big problem but of course that that's something that that brings kids to my office um you know some teenagers have always dabbled for instance it's in Marijuana is, is, is sometimes in the schools or vaping and things like that, and uh, but some of the kids are, are are truly becoming dependent. They're using substances as an escape or or as a way to essentially treat their own stress, their own anxiety. They seek these things out because, at least in the short run, it helps them feel better. Um, unfortunately, you know these substances are, are easy to get your hands on. In some communities, uh, they're legal, at least for adults, and uh, so that sends a little bit of a mixed message. Uh, they're certainly not a healthy way for for our teenagers uh, to deal with uh, rough times. And and many times these these um, substances exist in the house already because sure. parents have them in their medicine cabinets. Sure. Yeah. 
and the medicine cabinet is an important point that uh, kids, teenagers, will sometimes help themselves, and uh, parents really need to keep an eye on the prescriptions that they have. A, a, I, I believe, in fact, the most common source of uh, opiates that teenagers sometimes will find, we're talking here about sort of painkillers that dull the mind, uh, is from their, their parents' own house, from their parents' medicine cabinet, or from the homes of, of, uh, of friends and relatives. That's where that's where many people are are getting cooked or getting started. So, so um, beside a change that the parents might sense, um, are there any warning signs that you hear that when you're talking to your patients or to your the parents of your patients, things that you know are other red flags to you, bells and whistles going off that that um, say to you, we need to uh, get some help for your child? Yeah. Well, when I talk to the kids, and, and of course, you know, I'll, I'll ask the parents to step outside if, 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 the, if the child is comfortable with that. I ask pretty direct questions about what's been on their mind, what have they been thinking about. And uh, some of these kids are thinking about suicide or thinking about harming themselves mm-hmm. or harming other people. Yes. Some of these kids actually have come up with a plan. And when, we, when I talk about that with my patients, you know, I, I remain very, very bland. I don't want to increase the anxiety of the room. But thoughts about suicide or especially a specific plan is a huge red flag that immediate intervention is needed. Unfortunately, suicide is something that is a common cause of death among teenagers, one of the top causes of death. Many homes have guns or have pills or uh, other sorts of things that in, in just a few moments of poor impulse control, which, which I think all of our teenagers have some degree. <laughs> Not just teenagers. Very, <laughs> very tragic outcome. Not just teenagers, that, that's true. So certainly, among rules up, up there at the top, first things families need to do if they have a teen or even a preteen, that there's concerns about depression, there's concerns about mood and irritability, to get those guns out of the house, or if, if you just can't stand to do that, make sure they're locked up separately. From, from the ammunition and realize that your teenagers know the the security code for your gun safe. They know it. They're very, very smart. So please change that code. Even if you think, oh, there's, they don't even know there's guns in the house. Well, guess what? They do know, and they know how to get their hands on them. So let's let's make sure, at, at the very least, first steps, let's, let's protect them from the sorts of things that can cause immediate harm. Wow. You know, I, I want to get, uh, in, the, in the next segment, I want to get uh, a little bit deeper into this suicide um, uh, issue, which is, I think, epidemic right now. It's become, you know, a major problem that has been um, amplified because of COVID. And I'm going to, um, we're going to do, I think, a... a um, uh, a, a lightning round. I'm going to mention some some uh, issues, and I'm going to ask you to respond to them. And, and finally, I'm going to ask you to maybe share some specific um, instances of of patients that, uh, with, without naming names, about what kind of issues you've recognized and how you've been able to. Um, Uh, to intercede. So I'm going to ask everybody to stay with us in this very important episode of the Doctor's Lounge. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. and listen to The Doctor's Lounge, where you get a private insight into the conversations that doctors have amongst themselves. Join us Thursday, 8 a.m. every week. In 2009, the membership organization Docs for Patient Care was founded. People all around the country wanted to participate in the efforts of this group, and they wanted to join, but they were unable to do so unless they were physicians. It's for this reason that the Docs for Patient Care Foundation was created. Now, everyone can join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients, dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. While you're at your computer, please go to www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docs4patientcarefoundation.org and make a tax-deductible donation and join the fight along with us. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back into the Doctor's Lounge. I'm your host, Dr. Hal Schurz. My guest today is Dr. Roy Benarock, uh, Atlanta area pediatrician, um, mental health um, expert in children, and um, someone who works tirelessly at uh, trying to educate parents about uh, the well-being of children um, in his practice and um, and those who aren't um, by virtue of the work he does writing his blogs and um, on the internet and and heading the children's care network which is uh, the largest of the uh, integrated health care systems in pediatrics in the country Roy we have had a very interesting conversation thus far about the um, effects of of COVID on mental health in children, how parents could recognize these problems if their children are experiencing issues, um, what you look for as a pediatrician um, to uh, try to uh, um, uncover issues that, that may be causing uh, problems for these children. But I think that the 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 the, the worst of all problems that can occur um, in in a, a family is when a child um, decides to take their life, suicide, and um, this this has really become a national epidemic, hasn't it? 
yeah, yeah. I, it's it's really quite sad, but unfortunately, rates of, of both successful suicide—that's a terrible word to use—but that's let's say completed suicide is, is probably a better term. Or uh, thoughts of suicide, attempted suicide, have, have all increased uh, quite dramatically in terms of presentation to emergency departments and to mental health professionals and to general uh, generalists like myself. I'm a general pediatrician, but there's a, a big intersection there between the, the work that I do to help kids with mental health disorders and, and psychiatrists and psychologists in the field. There, there are not enough pediatric mental health experts. That's why all pediatricians need to become mental health experts. Wouldn't you agree? That, that is 100% true. Uh, mental health issues were something that was not really a focus of, of my training, which was 25 years ago, but it has been a huge part of my practice and, and therefore has become a, a huge part of my ongoing training. So that's something that I, I spend a lot of uh, weekend courses and reading and all this sort of thing so I can uh, stay up on this both recognition of mental health disorders and, and treatment because we just don't have the resources to refer kids to. There aren't enough psychologists, there aren't enough psychiatrists. The kids are hurting, the families need help, so often pediatricians and family medicine uh, physicians are stepping in. And I think, you know, we're, we're doing a, a good job helping, but we do need more support, and uh, we certainly can't do it on our own. You know, I, I, this, this show that we, that I do every, every week is, I, I, I would like to think is a, um, it's a resource. It's, it's a, and it, it's a privilege to be able to do this. And I think today's show is very important because, you know, there are going to be, um, parents who are listening to this show who may have, uh, a child that they're worried about. And, uh, I think that, they um, they need to make sure that their child is connected with a doctor who takes these issues seriously. It, and and I know that in in the um, the integrated network that you are the chair of, I'm the vice chair of. It's a it's a um, uh, it, it's a it's a primary concern. It's something that many resources are being directed towards um, to try to improve how we respond to children with mental health issues. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Yes, this has been recognized for for years uh, at, at at the level of our offices, from parents. I mean, we know this has been a crisis from well before COVID, honestly. So really one main focus of our integrated care network is, is improving the mental health of our children at, in several levels, too. You know, we're trying to get very, very robust data, right? The way to make best decisions is if you know what the problems are. And actually, I pulled some data. I, I can share it with you if you're curious just yes. yesterday about what's going on in our network with yes. mental health. That would be visits. great. Yeah, yeah. You know what? Let's 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 go through that. I want to talk more about the other efforts we have. But but um, one of the things that we're able to do with the clinical network is have our clinicians, about thirteen hundred plus uh, pediatric pediatricians and pediatric specialists in the network, and and we all share 
our data. Now, this is all anonymous, of course. We, we definitely protect the identity of, of our patients, uh, but, but we can look at surveys, we can look at large numbers. And just, I just pulled this with the help of, of the staff uh, yesterday, actually. And, and to make it simple, I was comparing numbers just between 2019 and 2020 as sort of a handy shorthand. 2019, of course. Does anyone remember 2019? No. <laughs> that was pre-COVID. Remember that? <laughs> and then uh, comparing the numbers to 2020, of, of course, COVID uh, probably appeared around December 2019. And by what is it, the end of February 2020? Is that about when, when shutdowns occurred? February, March, I want to say. Yes, yeah, So I, I just looked at 2019 versus 2020. And just to share some, some round numbers here looking at, let, let's see, let me pull this one. Let me look at anxiety disorders, anxiety disorders. So those are things like generalized anxiety and, and phobias and social anxiety. Uh, the rate of those diagnoses comparing the two years is up, you know, depending on the specific diagnosis, the increase was between 60 and 200 percent, actually, for some of the individual diagnoses doubled uh, across those two years. Depression was up, again, depending on the, the exact diagnosis, but just as a round number, it about uh, up by about 100 percent as well, it about doubled. Um, and even just visits to, to discuss the concerns, visits concerning concerns of anxiety increased on our whole network from 27,000 to 46 that's not quite double, but it's a huge jump. Uh, concerns of depression, depressive symptoms went from 20,000 visits to 30,000 visits. I'm just throwing out a couple of examples. It's a, it's a big page of, of numbers I have here. But this is you know, solid, hard data that's showing that in a year where overall our visits decreased dramatically. We saw far fewer visits in 2020. That's an effect of, of kids staying home and parents being afraid to leave the house. Um, even in the, in the face of far fewer visits, a very large jump in visits for, for mental health concerns. And this was actually starting before COVID. These trends had actually begun before COVID. So we've got the data to prove it, and there's some publications that have been made uh, recently, not, not from my network, I'll admit, but from, from other centers. What, what we're trying to do, we provide the data, we're trying to support sort of the infrastructure so that uh, pediatric specialists and pediatricians can, can provide mental health support using tools like telehealth. Uh, we're trying to support appropriate reimbursement uh, from, from the payers for us to have the time to, to address these mental health disorders. And in the long run, I think that the best thing that we can do and what we're working very hard at is trying to improve access. So kids have access to not only their primary care physicians, but mental health specialists like psychiatrists and therapists and social workers. Uh, there's all sorts of barriers in place, um, but through networks like ours, hopefully we can we can connect families to, to the resources they need. Roy, has um, the, the lack of um, adequate reimbursement for these problems been a barrier for... Um, treatment for children who have these problems? Wow. You're, that's kind of kicking a hornet's nest, I would say. You know, for years and years, for uh, let's just say for a variety of reasons, uh, mental health has been a, kind of carved out from the usual medical system we have. You know, you, you see separate providers, the reimbursement rates are separate, 
and lower. And uh, it, it, this has been going on for a, for a long time. This has been a source of frustration that's just coming to a head because the need has increased so dramatically. The bottom line, though, is, yeah, if you want to have good access to, to mental health providers, you have to pay the mental health providers appropriately. Uh, many don't even accept insurance plans because the, the reimbursement is minuscule and not worth the hassle of filing. And, you know, that might not be a huge problem for, for wealthy families or families in the suburbs who have a, a large number of providers around them, but it especially hits especially hard for families who are economically disadvantaged. Uh, they've been just clobbered both by COVID, by the mental health disorders that accompany it, and uh, sort of any way you look at it, the underrepresented disadvantaged families, they, 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 <laughs> I don't know how else to put it, they, they just take it in the shorts. They get, they get hit much harder, and uh, they're the kids who, who in some ways need it most. So we need to provide these services both for the, well, for everybody, for wealthy families, for families to have, quote, good insurance, but also for families who have no insurance or have public insurance. Um, you know, it's a problem for everyone. In the long run, we're going to end up paying for this. So we might as well try to intervene when the kids are young. We're paying for it already. and uh... Exactly. Right, right. We're paying for it. We're paying for it, unfortunately, through increased emergency department visits. That is the most expensive and worst place to offer mental health. Now, now let me let me back up for a second. I don't want to say worst place. If, for the families who are listening, if you have a crisis, if your child has attempted suicide or is talking about suicide, please have no hesitation to go directly to the closest emergency department. Okay, the emergency departments can take care of you, and I'm glad they're open. But in retrospect, often there was a way to intervene before going to the emergency. Not always, not always, but, but usually there were hints. Usually there were issues that were creeping up that were snowballing, and it would have been better if access could have been there for a mental health provider before the emergency room was necessary. So I, do, I don't want to scare parents away from the emergency department. That's the best place to be when you really need it. But what we have to do is make it so that families don't need to rely on the emergency department, which is you know, very, very expensive and, it, frankly, a terrible use of, of mental health resources. You know, uh, I hate to keep bringing this back to school closures, but so mm -hmm. much of what we're talking about, so many of these problems can be directly tied to school closures because much of this support for many of these families actually comes through the experiences that these children get in school, whether it is nutrition, the lunch that they may not be able to get at home because they're, they're, um, they're, there's a, a food shortage crisis or the, the counseling that many of mm -hmm. these children get at school, which is no longer available to them. So um, I think that um, we, we need to learn from this that, um, that if there's ever, ever another pandemic or emergency, that, that we need to understand that maybe the most vulnerable people in our society are the children they're not the most resilient and they often get overlooked yeah yeah i i, I would also add to, to your list of important resources in school just the peer networks just being with their friends 
that they know and they trust. Mm-hmm. That's such an important part of, of a child's life, in addition to the counselors and the teachers and the administrators who, who provide support in, in the schools. You're right. In, in their own way, kids can be very resilient, but they shouldn't be an afterthought. You know, I think we were so focused on uh, businesses and and restaurants and the elderly and the elderly, right? The at risk and, and the elderly and, and and these are all important. I, I don't want to sort of take away from how important it was to protect, especially the elderly, who are, who, who are at such high risk of complications of COVID. Uh, you know, this was complicated. I hope I hope that as things settle down that we can sort of objectively look back and, and learn these lessons, which will have to include admitting that some things were, were, were could have been done better. You know, that's okay. That's how we learn. That's how we grow. And uh, we, we've got to put kids and their needs right up there, not on the back burner, not as an afterthought, but but kids and schools should, should be really quite important. And I think the communities are, are going to want to or, or should do what they need to do to keep the schools open. That should be what can what do we need to do in our community so that we don't have to close the schools. Of course, that means keeping the rates of transmission of COVID or, or whatever the infection you're fighting, keep those transmission community transmissions low. If you can accomplish that, you can keep the schools open very safely. So how do we do that? Well, that's a big question, probably a little beyond what we're going to talk about in the podcast this morning, but, but that really should be, a, should be a goal. Roy, would you feel comfortable sharing a couple of specific examples with our listeners about um, problems that you've uncovered, um, diagnosed, and how um, you've intervened? Yeah, you know, I, I think that can be that can be illustrative. I, I need to be a little bit careful, of course. I don't want to cross any lines in terms of privacy. These are very difficult issues for families, and I, I want teenagers and my patients to feel that they can share things with me. Uh, let me let me tell you a story. I, I'm gonna, this may come across a little hesitant because I'm going to deliberately change a lot of details here. So if I stumble over a word, it's because there's something I don't want to say specifically. I appreciate I would that. hate for anyone to be able to identify exactly the case I'm thinking about. But of this course. was within, let me just say, within, within very recent memory, a, 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 a simple, what I thought was going to be a simple visit was a, uh, a teenager, a young woman who came in uh, to my office. And, and actually, the, the complaint, you know, we get what's called a chief complaint, which is, why, what are you, why are you here today, was actually allergies. That was what the nurse had put in there, and that's what it said when they made the appointment. And, you know, they were given, appropriately, a simple 15-minute allergies, common this time of year, right, in Atlanta, where we are. Mm-hmm. And, but the girl, you know, she was looking down at her feet, and she really kept mentioning this headache. Now, the family was honestly convinced that the headache was being caused by congestion and allergies, which, which isn't a bad idea. You know, it may have been. But as we talked about it, she, she really wasn't having the ordinary symptoms of, of allergies, the itchy nose and sneezing and, and rubbing the nose and congestion and things like that. What she really had were, were headaches. And although she had been, uh, she had resumed, actually, she had been in virtual school, but was now back to face-to-face, she was staying home because these headaches were, were, were keeping her at home. And we talked for a little while. And uh, as I often do with teenagers, I said, hey, well, let, let's keep talking. Would it, how would you feel if your mom and dad stepped outside? Uh, they had actually both accompanied her. The mom and the dad 
this was a this was a family where both parents were very involved, were very caring, where they certainly wanted to do the best for their for their for their child. So so they did step out, and then I talked to her, and then uh, a few tears fell, and. Um, you know, without sort of without sort of going into the details here, she she had been super super worried about um, a relative who had gotten sick with COVID, but she didn't want her parents to worry about her. Right? That was a big. She was trying to protect her parents because they knew she knew they were already upset about this this relative, and uh, she uh, was going to school, but um, she felt that she had missed so much school that she was having trouble keeping up, and she was having trouble focusing. And, you know, really the root of all of this was, was anxiety. And she had even crossed that bridge. I asked her, you know, this sounds like it's been so rough for you. Are there times when you, when you think of, of hurting yourself? And she had actually come up with a very, very specific plan. In fact, the only reason she hadn't, she told me the only reason she hadn't completed the plan was she was worried about how her, her parents would react. She didn't want her parents to worry. And that was, that was the only thing that was, uh, to say it bluntly, that was essentially keeping her alive. Her parents were trying to protect her. She was trying to protect her parents. Everybody was worried. And, and she was essentially non-functional when it ta- thinking about school and her friends. So, you know, there, there, other than... I mean, there, there wasn't really a very specific diagnosis here. This was a matter of then bringing the parents together with permission from, from the child, of course. That let's talk about this together. Can I bring your parents back in the room? I think we'll all feel better if we can get this out in the open. And I actually did not end up referring them for mental health. I didn't start a medicine. It wasn't about that. It was about opening communication. And then I actually saw her again just a few days later, and I talked to her on the phone a few times, and we've made arrangements for further telehealth. In the long run, I, I, I do think uh, comprehensive therapy for anxiety might be helpful for her, but we were able to come through the crisis by just having a, a conversation. And then and I think it helped that it was I was someone they knew and trusted, and so that was a, I think that was powerful for the family. So a 15-minute appointment that had been driven by a concern of allergies turned into really quite quite a long uh, encounter, but, but, but I was happy to do it. I mean, I, I think I was able to help and, and hopefully prevent a, a terrible crisis. By the way, uh, let me just make a, a brief plug here uh, because I mentioned it. For those of you who sometimes get frustrated at, at my office or at your doctor's office at the wait, um, we do not like to make you wait, believe me, but when it is your child in a crisis and they need 20 or 30 or 40 minutes of my extra time, I'm going to sit there in a chair and I'm not going to rush and I'm going to get through the encounter and do everything I can to help them, even though it means the next few visits I'm going to be running late and people are going to wait. But I'm going to be there for you when you need my extra time too, I promise. So anyway, a little bit of a tangent there, but um, I did get some, uh, some anger from the parents who came after me. And I know Hal is a specialist. You, you've had to deal with that oh too, right? Yes. I, so I, I always, I always, problem, I always want to tell a parent, that's okay, we'll make up the time on your child. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I'll, I'll, you know what? Even if I'm already running behind, if you need my extra time, this is my job. This is what I'll be here. And, and people do sometimes have to wait. But I, I, don't, I don't know of any way to, to know in advance exactly how much time I'm, I'm going to need. And certainly this family didn't realize that that's where this encounter was going to go, that, that, that they would be spending essentially an hour sitting and just, just chatting with Dr. Roy. That's all we did. We sat and talked, and I, I didn't prescribe medicine. I didn't order any tests, uh, but hopefully I was able to help these people out. Um, and these are the kinds of encounters that are coming up 
you know, I would even say several times a week in, in my office with kids and, and families near or at crisis levels in a way that, that sometimes sneaks up on people. Wow, this, you know, this has just opened up a whole thought process for me, the, this story, which I appreciate you sharing. The, it's, it's heartbreaking, the, the hopelessness that this child had and so many children obviously have and the fact that they had a great pediatrician in you who recognized that this was a problem how many pediatricians might not recognize this because they are um, trying to rush through a busy schedule and uh, they don't really um, think about what else might be going on or causing these problems and and uh that that to me is is really uh something that uh i i shudder to to think about all these um these um i don't know these cases of of uh of hopelessness and and uh and uh, you know uh, and uh going to extremes that are being missed I, I fear there there is there is quite a bit of that. Uh, often manifest by physical symptoms, headaches and, and, and belly aches, or loneliness and isolation are are so powerful, and uh, it's affecting the kids and it's affecting the families. You know that that's for sure. And I, I think that physicians and nurses and all of us who interact with patients, really all along the chain, need to keep in mind that there's there's kids out there who really need our help e- even in your office even even as a urologist i am i i'm sure you've seen kids recently who have urologic symptoms urinary frequency or pain that that may actually have a psychological or, or maybe related to stress and i think uh you know all of us are, are invested in the health of children and, and need to keep in mind that even if we don't feel that we're personally able to be to treat a mental health disorder, to at least recognize it and refer, let families know that there is help available and help people get plugged in with the, with the resources they need. Um, do, you, do you think that um, these issues are now being recognized and getting enough, um, I don't know, um, publicity, recognition, airtime, or do we need to do a better job? No, we, we need to do better, truthfully. I, I think it's getting more airtime. There, there was quite a bit of attention in the last few weeks. Uh, there, there, there was a recent study in JAMA. Uh, it was the JAMA Open Access Journal out of Chicago uh, that, that illustrated how, how, how frequently mental health concerns and mental health symptoms were occurring. And that, I think, received a fair amount of press. Um, I, I saw an article. I think you sent me the article from Time on that, on that study. Yes. So th- there is attention. But I think that kids, well, you know, I'm a pediatrician, I'll admit, maybe a little bit biased, but I, I think kids' needs really do need to be right up front. They, they really do need to come first. And there are ways that we can intervene earlier by providing the support they need where we the kids don't have to end up in a crisis. And part of that is appropriate support at school to circle to circle back to that topic. Um, so I think, I think more attention is needed. I think that lawmakers need to uh, help make sure that the that resources are available, you know, as we're thinking about these, and we don't have to get into the politics, but these, these big packages, these relief bills, a lot of money is being spent to 
combat COVID in different ways, economically, through enhanced testing, through supporting vaccine development. So there's a lot of money there. But some of that money, I would love to see some of that money earmarked to support children's mental health and to better support schools to stay open, to give them the technology, the better ventilation, you know, the things that school, schools need money if they're going to stay open safely. And I think that that should be right up there at the top of the list. Unfortunately, as a healthcare warrior for the past decade and a half, um, I, I've um, come to realize that uh, children are at the bottom of the list because there's no constituency for children. They don't contribute money. There's nobody lobbying for them. And so that's why they unfortunately are an afterthought in so many ways. Um, And again, not to get political, I'm trying my best not to. I often uh, do on this show. But um, I don't think that the teachers' unions have really done um, these children any good at all and are putting their own needs ahead of those of the children that they're supposedly um, responsible for and whom they've devoted their life to. And that's, that's, that's my political pitch. So, <laughs> so well, I'm not going to... Well, let's say this. I'm not going to agree or disagree with, with, with the statement in regards to the teachers' union. But what I can, and I think we'll agree on this one, what, what I would say is that the vast majority of teachers, I think we can agree with this, the teachers I know, the, the parents I deal with who are teachers themselves, they really want to help the kids. They want to be in the classroom. They want to help your children. If they have the resources that they need, I think they can do a tremendous job. They're, they're, they're not in it for the money. <laughs> they no. didn't choose to become teachers uh, for some, you know, for some other reason. They chose to become teachers because they want to teach. And I think that, that they, they're a uh, an, an underappreciated resource. And when I say appreciated, I mean underfunded. And we're talking here the teachers in the classroom. I agree with that. I think that, 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 that they're trying to do their best. I, I, I completely agree with that. Yeah. You know, it sounds like, um, you know, it, pediatricians can do a, a, a better job as well by by um, educating themselves and, and staying on top of things. And, you know, unfortunately for people like you, your job becomes harder and longer because you can, the, the thing that uh, we've learned from this pandemic is that the clock no longer exists because of tele, the, 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 the telecommunication um, uh, aspect of things. And so, there, you know, whereas a, your job might end at, at uh, 5 o'clock, it no longer ends at 5 o'clock. It, it's really never ending. And the ability to, uh, to reach out to your patients, um, there's, there can be really no no limits to what uh, is is uh, you, you know um, the demands on your time well that that is true although um, I, I don't I don't necessarily mind that uh, I, I do call my parents in the evenings or on my way home from work and things like that when, when people need me I'd like to to feel that I can make the time to be available um, but you know, the, the mental health of, of health care providers, I think, has to some degree suffered during this pandemic. Um, uh, you know, in my office, I, we're not struggling with PPE. We have seen, of course, some kids with COVID in the office, but I'm not an ICU physician or an ER physician no. or, or an ICU nurse. Uh, but, but boy, let me just hats off 
to the especially ED and ICU I agree. Uh, people working in there, the nurses, the I'm, respiratory techs. I'm gonna they cu- have worked their tails off. I agree. I'm going to cut you off, Roy, because we're coming up to the end, and I want to give, I want to thank you for being on the show, and I want you to have an opportunity to tell people how they can um, see you on your blog. Thank you, thank you. How? Yes, my blog is at pediatricphysicians.com. We had had talked a little bit about suicide. I actually have a very brief, it's only 45 minutes video course on the recognition and uh, of suicide risk, uh, focusing not only on kids, on teenagers, but on adults. That's available at The Great Courses or at The Great Courses Plus. Uh, That's a commercial product, but it's not very expensive, I promise. And it's very, very short talking about the warning signs of suicide and what we all can do to recognize and help people who are at risk. So uh, I hope that that will be helpful for people. Please please go to that because Dr. Roy has a lot of excellent uh, information for parents out there. And I want to thank everybody for being with us in the Doctor's Lounge today. My guest, Dr. Roy Benarock. And uh, come back next week and and join my uh, partner, Dr. Scott Barber, on the Doctor's Lounge. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.